We spent the weekend talking about God's heart for our homes, and this morning we're going to do it a little bit more. We're going to keep going. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'll be preaching verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. I know some of you have heard some stories about revival lately. Have you heard some of these stories? Have you been seeing online some of these videos? And we've been hearing about revival breaking out in different college campuses and then spreading to other campuses and other churches and uh, throughout the nation. And we get excited when we hear those stories. And I think there's two main reasons we get excited. One, we get excited because it is such a joy to just be reminded, and we know this already, but to be reminded that God moves mountains. That nothing is impossible for the Lord and that the Lord is still moving mountains today. The Lord is still saving people today. God will save people. Today he will restore marriages. Today he will transform families. Today he will draw prodigals back to himself among the nations. And I think it's a joy to be reminded that God moves. The second reason I think we get excited when we hear about revival is because anyone who's been paying attention at all knows we need revival. How many of y'all believe we need revival in our nation? Anybody? Anybody think, now we're doing just fine. We need revival in our nation. We need revival in the church. And we need revival in the home. There's a pastor in England about 350 years ago named Richard Baxter. And he wrote, If you desire the reformation and welfare of your people, do all you can to promote family religion. You are not likely to see any general reformation till you procure family reformation. Richard Baxter pastored a church in Kidderminster, England in the 1600s. And when he got to this church of about 600... There weren't very many families that were practicing family worship together. Almost none of them. But he was a pastor there for 15 years. And for 15 years, he encouraged them to bring the gospel into the home. For 15 years, he prayed for revival. And when he left 15 years later, just about every single family in their church was faithful in family worship. We call that revival. Another way to kind of paraphrase his quote is to simply say, if you want revival in the church, pray for revival in the home. Dennis Rainey, a more current author, wrote, no church, community, or nation will rise higher than the spiritual condition of its families. And we see this correlation, don't we? We see this parallel. Every challenge and problem and sin that we see in our nation, we see those same things in the home, don't we? In fact, as the home has drifted further and further away from the Lord, we see our nation drifting further and further away from the Lord. They seem to go together. But the encouraging thing is that the flip side can be true as well. As the home draws closer to the Lord, as revival takes place in the home, we could see that sweep across our entire nation. I'm from Texas. I grew up in North Texas. I live in Fort Worth, Texas right now, but I'm the first Texan in my family. 
All the rest of my family is from East Tennessee. My parents, even my brother, my grandparents, they all grew up there in Maryville, Tennessee, or as some might call it, Merville, Tennessee, at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. We have friends here from Maryville today. And, and so I grew up doing that road trip from Texas to East Tennessee to see the grandparents right there at the Smoky Mountains. And just even last year, I had the chance to get my family up there, and so my wife and our kids, and we all got to go to the Smoky Mountains, and we all stayed in the cabin there with the whole family. And at some point that week while we were in the cabin, uh, we got to go walk around, hike around the mountains, and we found this stream. And we get to this stream, and any family, any kid that ever comes across the stream, we probably all do the same thing. You immediately, it's like this instinct within us, when you see water, you just start picking up rocks and throwing them in the water. There's something in our mind that says these rocks need to be in that water. And, and so that's what we did. We picked up the rocks and we started skipping the rocks across the water, teaching our kids how to do it. It's showing, you know, that little <laughs> sidearm move and which rocks to choose and how to hold them and how to skip them. And then we're counting the skips and, of course, they immediately turn into a competition to see who can get the most skips. It was fun for me to watch these kids, these, this tech generation that with no iPad, no phone, no Nintendo Switch, all they really need to be entertained for three hours is some rocks and some water. And they just threw rocks and water. I was like, see, you don't even need an app for that. But when you throw a rock in the water, we all know what happens. As a rock skips across the water, it only makes impact maybe right here or right here. But even though it only makes an impact right here, there, there's these ripples that come off. And if you do it just right, those ripples can spread all the way to the riverbanks. You make this small impact that has a ripple effect far beyond what you could have ever imagined. As we talk about praying for revival in the home, as we read Deuteronomy 6 this morning, we talk about bringing the Word of God into the home. Part of our prayer is that God would use you right now to, to make an impact on the next generation in such a way that the impact ripples out for generations to come. That you could plant some seeds, share the gospel, bring the word of God to their heart, to their home in such a way that there's a ripple effect for generations to come. Let's read our passage together this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9. I'll begin in verse 4. The word of God reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning convinced, Lord, that we need revival. We rejoice, Lord, that you are the God who moves mountains. You are the God who still moves, who still saves, who still redeems and changes and reconciles and re restores, Lord. And we pray that we would see you move again. That we would see revival in our church. That we would see revival in our homes. And that we would see revival sweep across this nation, God. 
And I pray that you would use the families here today to bring the word of God to the next generation, to bring the word of God into their homes in such a way that there is a ripple effect that impacts generations to come. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. When they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Out of all the commandments, out of all the Old Testament scriptures he could have quoted, when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5. I think they almost expected him to. This is one of the most famous passages. In fact, this passage is referred to as the Shema. The first word in verse 4 is hear, like to hear something, to listen to something. And in Hebrew, that word here is Shema. And so this entire passage, a lot of times, is just referred to as the Shema. And, and in fact, if you go to some homes still today, especially of some Jewish families, above the doorpost in their house, they'll have a little plaque over the door with this passage on it. Or sometimes they'll have a plaque over the door and they'll just have the Hebrew word Shema. Because in verse 9 it says to put the word of God on the doorpost of your house. So this is a very famous passage. I believe it's a very relevant passage for us today. And I think especially as we're praying for revival in our homes and revival in our nation, I believe this is one of the most important passages we could come to. And in these verses, we see three things that we are called to do that I want to share with you. So later when you're eating the Georgia barbecue, I've heard that Georgia barbecue is different than Texas barbecue. So later when you're having your Georgia barbecue for lunch today, and you're talking to each other about the sermon, and you say, what was the sermon about? What was the passage teaching us? These are the three things I want you to remember that we're called to do. The first thing that we are called to do in this passage is we are called to love God. We are called to love God. Look at verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the passage starts with this affirmation of who God is, the nature of God. It starts by just affirming that there is only one true living God. Any other so-called God is a false God, an idol, a dead God made by hands that cannot hear, cannot save, cannot move. But there is one true living God who created all things and holds all things together. And he is one. And we affirm who this God is in verse 4. And then in verse 5 we see the most appropriate response to the one true living God. When we learn that there is a God who created everything. A God who made us in, our, in his image. A God who holds all things together. A God who is beautiful and glorious and uh, majestic. All-powerful, all-knowing. What is our response to that God? Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This, of course, is what Jesus quotes as the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. To simply love God with all all of our affections with everything we have. It's the greatest commandment because when we keep this commandment, everything else falls into place. If we love God with all of our heart, soul, and might, we won't have other gods before him. 
If we love God with all of our affections, then we will not take his name in vain. If we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, then we will worship him and praise him and live for him. When we love God, when we are great commandment believers, everything else falls into place. It's the greatest commandment. It does not say you shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart, with some of your soul, with some of your might, some of the time. How many of you have ever bought a house before? Anybody ever bought a house? <coughs> That's a tough process. Imagine though you buy a house, you make the offer, they accept the offer, you go through all the inspection, everything, you show up to closing, you sign 800 pages of paper, right? Initial here, initial here, initial here, initial here. And, and finally they give you the keys, they say it's your house. And you go to your house and you're so excited. And you're walking around the house looking at the living room and the kitchen and the bedroom and the closets and the backyard. And everybody's excited. And, and you see this one room in the house. And the door's shut. You try to open it and you figure out that it's locked. And you try all your keys and you don't have a key to that room. So you call your realtor. And you say, we're here at the house. There's a room we've never seen before. The door is locked. We don't have a key to it. And the realtor says, oh yeah, you bought the house, but you don't get that room. You can have the rest of the house. Every other room in the house is yours. Just focus on that. But don't ask again about that room. That room does not belong to you. Would any of you just kind of nod along and say, sounds good. Makes sense. Okay, thanks. No. None of us would be okay with that, right? But that's kind of what we do to the Lord. We say, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my whole life except for this one little part. There's just one room. I'll give you my whole life except for my thought life. I'll give you my whole life except for my pride. I'm going to give you my whole life except for that one relationship over here. I'm going to give you my life but not my money. I'm going to give you my life but not my weekends. I'm going to give you my life but not my kids. Don't, don't ask me to give those to you. We hold these things back. And in verse 5 though, we are called to be all in. Sold out. To follow the example of Caleb in the Old Testament, when they described Caleb, they said he was a man who was wholeheartedly committed to the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. We are called to be great commandment families. And the next thing we see is we're called to lead the next generation to do the same. The second thing we're called to do here in the Shema is we are called to teach God's word to the coming generation. In verse 7 it says, teach them, meaning the commandments of God, the words of God, teach them diligently to your children. But before we can do that, back up to verse 6. Before we can do that, we get to verse 6 and it says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You see, before we can teach the Word of God to the next generation, the Word of God actually has to be on our heart. As many have said before, we can't give them something that we don't have. Oftentimes, the reason why we are not passing on our faith to the next generation is because our faith has become weak. Oftentimes, the reason we're not proclaiming the gospel and the Word of God to the next generation is because we ourselves are not living in the Word of God. If it's not hidden on our heart, how are we expected to give it to them? So we are called to love God with all of our heart and then to hide his word in our heart 
to the point where it overflows to the next generation. In verse 7 it says, You shall teach them, meaning the commandments of God, the words of God, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now I think there's two applications here for us this morning. One, you know, to the parents, I think there's an immediate application for any parent in this room. Raise your hand if you're a parent. Raise your hand if you just found out because the person next to you raised your hand. No. You're looking at your wife. You're pregnant. There's an immediate application for all parents. It says, teach the word of God diligently to your children. Parents, did you know that we are commanded in Scripture to teach God's word to our children in our homes? We're commanded to. And not just in Deuteronomy 6. Genesis 18, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, Ephesians 6. Throughout Scripture, parents are commanded to disciple their children and to teach the Word of God to their children in their homes. We call this family discipleship. We call this family worship. There's another application, though, I believe, for the whole church. I believe all of God's people, the whole congregation of God's people, share this responsibility, this call to proclaim the Word of God to the next generation. I love Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, you have a congregation of God's people that come together and they are passionate about seeing the next generation knowing God. It's not a take it or leave it thing. They're, they're, they're not uh, laid back about it. They're not apathetic about it. They don't say, well, I kind of hope that it happens. They feel the weight of the urgency that the next generation must know God and all of God's people comes together in Psalm 78 and they say, we're going to make it known to them. And there's a prayer there in Psalm 78, 7. The fruit they're hoping for, the thing they're hoping to see. It says, we're going to make it known to the next generation so that they will set their hope in God. Listen, friends, this next generation behind us they're going to hope in something. I, I would even go further and say they already do. They've already put their hope in something. And if it's not God, then what is it? When we read verse 7 here, teach them diligently to your children, I believe as an entire church, we should feel the weight of the urgency to proclaim God's word to the next generation so that they would set their hope in God. One author, he looked at the Hebrew there for this phrase, teach diligently. And he said the best way to understand that phrase is to imagine chiseling something into stone. When it says teach the word of God diligently to your children, it's this idea of chiseling the word of God into their hearts. Have you ever come across wet cement? Maybe you're walking around the historical downtown. By the way, I love y'all square. It's beautiful here. Maybe you're walking around the square one day and they're redoing the sidewalk and they got it roped off and they have some wet cement and you know you're not supposed to do it. But what do you want to do? You want to go under the rope and you want to put your initials, right? You want to put FPC Noonan was here. Right? Maybe even put your handprints. We know we're not supposed to do that though, right? And the reason we're not supposed to do that is because we know that if we put our handprints in wet cement, if we put our initials in there, if, if we put, you know, Pastor Eric was here, try to get him in trouble, that when the cement hardens, that will be there forever. 
What if you pictured the hearts of the next generation, the hearts of your children, the hearts of your grandchildren, what if you pictured their hearts like wet cement and you have a chance to impress something into their hearts that when they're older will be there forever. And the thing that we're called to impress in their hearts is the word of God, the gospel of grace. And I got to tell you something, friends, the world is not waiting for you to decide whether or not you're going to do that before they decide whether or not they're going to impress something else in the hearts of our kids and grandkids. The world is coming for our kids. We feel it. We see it. That generation is daily bombarded with cultural narratives that know nothing of God. With lies and temptations that are intentionally, proactively trying to indoctrinate them and pull them away from the very truth of the word of God. This is not the year that we sit back passively and say, man, I hope they set their hope in God. Man, I hope that someone comes along and impresses the word of God on their hearts. This is the year we press in and lean forward and we say that we are going to feel the weight of the insurgency and we're going to go all in on impressing the word of God on the hearts of our children, our grandchildren, on the hearts of the young people in our church. We're going to reach that next generation so that they would set their hope in God. There's a Sunday school teacher in the 1800s you've probably never heard of. Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball. Anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? You probably never heard of him. He's just a Sunday school teacher in the 1800s. Never had a website or podcast. Never published a book. Not a famous guy. But he showed up week after week to the church and he taught Sunday school. He taught young people. And he was passionate about impressing the word of God on the hearts of young people. And at some point in his ministry, he had the chance to help lead a young man to Christ by the name of Dwight L. Moody. Have you heard of him? Dwight Moody was an American evangelist and publisher who founded the Moody Church, the Moody Bible Institute, Moody Publishers. And he gave personal discipleship to another young man named J. Wilbur Chapman in the late 1870s. Chapman then discipled another man by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday then started to organize evangelistic meetings. And in 1934, he invited a man by the name of Mordecai Ham to come and lead one of these evangelistic meetings. And in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934, as Mordecai Ham was preaching at the request of Billy Sunday, there's another young man sitting there that came down the aisle and gave his life to Christ. And that young man was named Billy Graham. Have you heard of Billy Graham? Yeah. I doubt when Edward Kimball was showing up to Sunday school week after week, teaching the word of God to the next generation, planting seeds here and there, watering those seeds. I doubt he ever imagined the ripple effect that that could have on generations to come. But he was faithful. And he got the word of God to the hearts of those kids. He skipped those stones across the river 
and the ripple effect has now reached thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. Will this be the year that we feel the weight of that urgency and we become more intentional than ever before to bring the Word of God into our homes, to impress the Word of God on the hearts of our children, on the hearts of our grandchildren, and to reach the next generation. So how do we do that? Well, the third thing we're called here to in this passage shows us how to do that, especially for parents and grandparents. The third thing we're called to here too is we are called to rhythms of family worship in the home. We are called to rhythms of family worship in the home. When I say family worship, what am I talking about? Family worship takes place when the members of a household come together to teach and enjoy the Word of God, to pray with and for one another, and to offer praises to the Lord. So there's three main elements of family worship. We want to teach the Word of God, we want to pray together, and we want to praise together. We want to open up the Bible at the dinner table. We want to open up the Bible in the mornings. And we want to teach the Word of God. We want to have our own devotion in the morning and the evening. Share that devotion with our kids. When our grandkids come over, we want to look for opportunities to open up the Word of God and teach them the Word of God and share testimonies with them about what God has done in our lives. Then we want to pray together. All those burdens and concerns and heaviness on our hearts, we want to talk about that in the home. Share prayer requests and then pray with one another. We want to share praises together. We want to share all the joys and the blessings and the answered prayers and then come together and offer praise to God. We want to fill our home with worship music. We want to get Spotify playlists, Pandora playlists, worship music that we have playing in the house and in the car. We want to throw up a video on YouTube of a worship song with the words on the screen. Bring our family into the living room and sing that together. Can you imagine if we filled our homes with worship this year? Look at verse 7. It says, teach them diligently to your children. When and where are we going to do this? It says, you should talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. It says we're going to talk about it in the house. We're going to bring this into the home. The average kid or teenager in America today spends 3,000 hours a year on their phone, social media, YouTube, video games. Now, you know, before we, we get judgmental about that, adults, it's about the same for adults. But they spend 3,000 hours a year in front of those things. If they come to everything we do here at the church... Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every D-Now, fall retreat, winter retreat, youth camp, children's camp, VBS. They never miss. They never get sick. They never go out of town. They show up every time the doors are open. We get 200 hours a year to disciple them here at the church house. Now, if they're in front of social media, YouTube, screens, video games, 3,000 hours a year. And they're gathering with the church, best case scenario, 200 hours a year. You tell me what's going to win their heart. What's going to shape their worldview. What's being impressed on that wet cement of their hearts right now. But parents, 
you have the potential at least conservatively every year of 2,000 hours a year with your kids at the house. Not while you're sleeping or at school or at work, just sitting around the house, 2,000 hours a year. What if we started adding more intentionality to those hours? What if some of those hours included praying together, praising together, worship music in the home, family devotion? What if we open up the Bible together in the home? Now we're impressing truth and word of God and biblical worldview on their hearts. What about grandparents? What about if your time with your grandkids, you, you look for little opportunities to be intentional, to pray with them, to ask how you can pray for them, to do a devotion, share a testimony. So much of the Bible is just God's people sharing testimonies of what God has done. Do your kids know your testimony? Do your grandkids know your testimony? My, uh, I got three kids, Gracie, Silas, and Elijah, and uh, we dropped them off at my parents' house years ago for the weekend so my wife and I could get some date night time. And when we picked them up, uh, I walked in the living room, and my mom had this thing. Some of y'all, you've seen this in the church, when, you know, years ago. You remember those felt boards they used to have in Sunday school for kids? And, and you'd have like a felt Noah and a felt Daniel and the lions, and you would stick it on the board, and that's how you would teach Bible stories to the kids. Y'all, raise your hand if you remember this, right? All right, well, apparently my mom stole one from some church because she had one. And I don't know where she got this. They don't sell these at Lifeway, but she had one. And, and so I walked to the house and she had gotten that out of the garage, all the felt pieces. And, and my daughter, Gracie, at the time was only five or six years old. And she runs up to me and says, Daddy, come here. I want to teach you these stories. And so I sat down and for the next 30 minutes, she's got the felt guys up there. She's teaching me all these stories about Zacchaeus and Jesus and the disciples and John the Baptist and Moses and Noah. And I sat there for half an hour, her teaching me the word of God because that weekend, her grandparents found a way to be intentional to teach them the word of God there in the home. We are called to rhythms of family worship in the home, finding those ways to bring the word of God into the home. It says we're going to do it when we sit at the house, when we walk by the way, driving in the car, taking them to school, taking them home from school, road trips, finding those little conversations, those little opportunities just to, to enter in. I had a friend tell me this story, and I shared it this weekend just the other day. There's a man who had been thinking about some of these things, a father, about how, how can I be intentional with my kids? And, and they were on a road trip, and he's driving. He had the radio on. He's listening to the radio. His wife was sitting there on the phone scrolling. And, and all three of his kids were either on their phone or on Nintendo Switch. And he was like, you know, this is one of those opportunities. We're together. I could just add some intentionality. You know, this is kind of Deuteronomy 6. When, when you walk by the way kind of thing, I'm going to try it. So he turned off the radio, asked everybody to put down their devices. He said, kids, I, I just want to speak some words of blessing over you and say a prayer over you. And so for the next two, three minutes, he, he kind of spoke some words of blessing over the kids, said a prayer over the family while he drove, eyes open. Don't close your eyes when you're praying and driving. And after about three minutes, he was done, and no one said anything. It's quiet. And so after a few more minutes, he turned the radio back on. They picked up the Nintendo Switch. She got her phone, and everybody just kept doing what they're doing. No one said a word. 
And so he starts driving. He starts thinking, well, that was ridiculous. That didn't do anything. I can't believe I did that. How awkward, how embarrassing. Never doing it again, right? And a few weeks go by. And after a couple weeks, there's a day, a morning, he's taking his eighth grade boy to school. Just him and his son. And they got the radio on, you know, sports radio in the morning. And as they're driving, his eighth grade son says, hey, dad, could you turn the radio off and speak some more of those blessings over me? His son for two weeks had been hungry for that, waiting for that, wondering, when are you going to do that again? Our kids and our grandkids are, are looking for, for, for truth, for answers, for hope, for affirmation for identity. And if we're not there to speak into that, I promise you they'll take all those questions to the world and the world will be more than happy to give them the answer. The world will tell them who they are, what truth is, what hope is. And they'll find their identity in those things. We're called to, to teach the truth of God's word to this generation. When you lie down, when you rise, can you imagine starting your morning in the word of God, ending your day in prayer with your families? Some of you, kid, some of you guys have young kids right now and you know that the bedtime routine with young kids takes like 45 minutes. You got to read six books and th sing three songs and get the right stuffed animals and check under the bed and make sure there's no monsters. And it takes a while. My kids always save the biggest questions of life for bedtime. Right when you think it's over, they throw some huge question on you as you're trying to leave, right? What's heaven like, Dad? You're like, what? <laughs> you're telling me in those 45 minutes of bedtime routine, we, we, we can't pray together? We can't worship together. We need to just add some intentionality to the time that God has given us to teach diligently the word of God to our children in the mornings, in the evenings, as we go. There's a lot of things we can pass down to our kids. There's a lot of things we can pass down to our grandkids. But none of them are as powerful as the word of God. I, uh, my grandmother, before she passed, and she started this like 30 years before she passed away, but she would go through her house with the marker, she would take things, and on the bottom of it, she'd write the name of the kid who's going to get it when she dies. And, and so when she passed away, everybody's going through the house looking at the bottom of everything, you know, wh whose name's on the bottom of the cat, whose name's on the bottom of the car, right? And she wrote names on it. And, and we all kind of think about that, you know, what are we going to leave for our kids? What are we going to leave for our grandkids? And there's so many things we could pass down. But the greatest thing, the most imperative thing, the, the one true necessary thing for us to make sure we pass down is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know there's one true living God. They need to know that that one true living God created everything that exists, that he created all mankind. He created them male and female. He created them in his image. They need to know that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They need to know that that sin has separated us from God. And they need to know that that sin puts us on a path to death and destruction. And they need to know that even in our sin, even in our unrighteousness and impurity and depravity, that God still loves us. 
And that God demonstrated his love to, to us. He proved his love. He showed his love by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who lived a sinless life, the spotless, blameless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and how he died on the cross for our sins. That death that our sin deserves, he took it on himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. They need to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He rose on the third day, conquering death, conquering sin. They need to know that if we would turn away from our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we will be saved by grace through faith. We can't become righteous but if we would believe in Jesus, the Bible says that God will count our faith as righteousness. And that when Jesus saves us, he forgives us. That we are now a new creation, clothed in his righteousness, sealed with his Holy Spirit, guaranteed eternal life in heaven with him forever. Have we told him this story? Have we told him the gospel? In the midst of all the bad news in the world, have we told him the good news? Are they finding their hope and their peace and their joy in Jesus Christ? There was a missionary in Africa a long time ago named David Livingston. And David Livingston had a 300-mile trek across Africa. And at the beginning of the trek, he had three different backpacks with 73 different books weighing 180 pounds. And as he embarked on this missionary journey, he was carrying these 73 books, these three packs, this 180 pounds on his 300-mile journey. But as he started going, they, of course, got a little heavy. So after a while, he took a few books out that he didn't think he needed. And after a little bit longer, he took some more books. And he got down to 60 books and 50 books, down to 30 books, down to 15 books. That felt a lot lighter. Down to 10 books, down to five books. And it is said, by the time he finished his journey, he only had one book left. And that, of course, was the Bible. Our kids, our grandkids are carrying a lot of weight right now. But there's one thing that they need, and that is the word of God. Have we committed ourselves to proclaim the word of God to our kids, our grandkids, and the next generation? I know we're praying for revival. We're seeing it. What if this year, everybody in this room committed and said, this year, we're going to bring the word of God into our home. We're going to worship together. We're going to pray together. We're going to share testimony together. We're going to do that with our kids. I'm going to do that with my grandkids. What if everyone in this room said, this year, I'm going to go all in on making the gospel known to the younger generation here in my church? And what if we started that today? And what if we did that all year long? You know what we'd call that year? We'd call it revival. It would be the greatest year of revival we've known. It would be the most amazing year to see God move in that way. Here in a minute, we're going to have an invitation. And I know some of y'all have been in church your whole lives. You've seen thousands of invitations. But if this is going to be a year where we see God move mountains, 
Hey, this is going to be the year of revival, and this is going to have to be the year that even invitations look a little different. So I'm going to challenge you today during the invitation that if it's been a while since you got out of your seat and came down to the altar, then, then let it be today. Take the hand of your wife, your husband, bring them down with you. Grab the hands of your children, go get them if they're sitting with their friends, and bring them down to the altar. And let's start right now praying for our families, praying with our families, praying for our homes, and asking for the Lord to bring revival to our homes, revival to our church, revival to our nation. Come down here and spend this time praying for your grandkids. And there's a special challenge for some of us. Some of us, you have a kid or a grandkid that right now you would probably say they're a prodigal. They're like the prodigal son. They have a home with the father, but they've left that home. They've drifted from God. They're, they're in some sin right now. Some of you might have a child or a grandchild that's even said they don't believe. This is the morning to come down to the altar and pray for our prodigals. To store up those prayers, to pray on our face, on our knees before the Lord, begging for the Lord to draw them back to himself. And months from now, years from now, when we see the Lord move that mountain, we'll think back to this morning and say, oh, I remember praying for you. I remember being on my face at the altar praying for God to bring you back and now look what he's done. And so as we have this time of invitation, let this be a day to pray with your family, to pray for your family, and to ask for the Lord to bring revival to our homes. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray for revival today, God. We pray to you for revival because we know that we need it and we know that you can do it. There is no child so far gone, no marriage so broken that you cannot move and restore. There's no family here today that is sitting in the rubble to the point to where they cannot be restored back to you, Lord. Nothing is impossible for you, God. So we pray for revival for our marriages. We pray for revival for our kids and our grandkids. We pray for revival for our homes. We pray that this would be the year that you fill our homes with worship and prayer and praise and the true living word of God. And we pray for those prodigals, Lord, that you would bring them back. We pray for our kids and our grandkids that they, Jesus, would set their hope in you, Lord. We pray that you would move mountains this year in a mighty way for your glory, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen. The